Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Uh, This morning we have a special guest. We have the director of Victims of War from Far Reaching Ministries with us this morning. And you might recall that we partnered with Far Reaching Ministries towards the end of last year during the crisis that was happening in Afghanistan. And they were able to utilize some of the funds to help out what was going on there. So this morning, we're having Sean Stone share with us. Come on up. Oh, man. It, uh, it is so great to be with you guys today for many, many reasons. Uh, not only to represent the ministry, but I, I know I'm in a room with a lot of friends from a lot of years. And so uh, it's a privilege to be with you guys. Um, if you have your Bible, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, when Trevor asked me to share, I was delighted. Um, Trevor's an awesome friend. He's been an incredible friend. You guys are blessed with him. I know you already know this as a pastor, he and Lindsay, and they are away this weekend uh, doing a wedding. I, I, I hope I'm not letting He's in Switzerland, so man, good for him. So um, every once in a while, God just blesses you, you know? He's like, somebody, I want you to do my wedding, and I'll pay for you to go to Switzerland. I don't know how long he had to pray for that, but I'm sure it wasn't too long. But... Um, Philippians chapter 2, um, and the, like Danny said, I'm going to be sharing today a little bit, uh, a message from Philippians 2, sharing about our ministry, giving an update on Afghanistan, and uh, Danny did mention you guys as a church gave over $15,000 back um, collectively um, in September, and I will give you an update on Afghanistan. It is an ongoing operation. Um, it is one of the many wars that we are currently involved with, as long as um, Ukraine, Burma, and other parts of the world. Um, Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage of Scripture. Um, And I pray this morning it's going to be one that encourages you, um, also for some of you exhorts you, makes you perhaps for some to really examine your life, maybe a little bit uncomfortable, like where am I at and what am I doing and what God might say to you today that you would leave, that really all of us would leave different, right? I mean, we come to church because we want to be, we want to hear from God. We want to be challenged. We want to be changed. We want to be different. And that's a desire that God puts within each and every one of us. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read through verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray. Paul writes this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of One mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, or let this mind, uh, uh, excuse me, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Father, I just thank you so much. It's so good to be in your house. And Lord, as a, as a body, Lord, as your sons and daughters, we desire more than anything else to hear from you. And so, Father, we pray by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us. You would speak collectively to this church, but also individually. We would have ears to hear what you are saying. God, those who are in the tough place right now that they find themselves, I pray today would be a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word to keep going. Lord, for some of us, Lord, we're a bit comfortable. Lord, I pray it would be a word of exhortation that we would hear and respond and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, above all else, Lord, we want to see you glorified. Like this passage says, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. May that truly be the cry of every one of our hearts and lives, that Jesus, you are Lord over everything. We want to see you, Lord, over everything in this earth, in our families, in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, it's such a blessing to be with you today. Um, and as I think about today, and, and I say today generally in the world that we live in, it's a, it's a time in which there's a lot of anxiety. It's a time of which even Pastor Danny opened in prayer, praying for the shooting in Buffalo, praying for Ukraine. We see the things in the news, and it's filled with bad news. We wonder what's going on with inflation. We wonder what's going on. Is there a possibility of recession? Some of you have unfortunately looked at your 401ks and, and your stock accounts the last couple of months, and you're like, what in the world's going on? And I see a few you know, noddings of heads. And, and, and beyond that, you're looking around and you think, man, there is so much bad news. And we just want to say, Lord, come quickly. Amen. I'm like, Lord, just come quickly. And yet I want to say to you this morning, I want to give some encouragement. In the midst of the bad news, and there is certainly bad news, and as a ministry, we are often in the places of that, quote, bad news. There's a lot of great news as well. There is light that is shining in the darkness. The Bible says in the Gospel of John, the light always extinguishes the darkness. And so I want to encourage you, yes, body of Christ, yes, church, God is on the move. But I want to speak to you individually, because some of you might find yourself in that place personally. Maybe you personally are in the valley. Maybe you personally are in that shadow of the darkness, you know, that, that the Bible talks about passing through the valley of the shadow of death. I want to say to you with everything in me, God is still good. God is with you in that valley. Romans 8.28 is always true. God is working all things out for good. I say that from personal experience. I say that from years of walking with people through some of the most difficult things. God has a purpose, and it is good. If there's one thing that I know, God is good. As much as we look around, sometimes we wonder, God is good, and he is powerful, and he is at work. Some of you need to hear that this morning. And the purpose that God has is good, and the purpose that he has is life. He has life for you. But not just life, it's eternal life, but I love the way Jesus describes it. He says, I've come to give you life, and life, we know this, abundantly. And yet, sadly, so many of us know so many people do not experience that abundant life. There's a lot of believers that have never really, if they're honest, I don't know, I've heard about this abundant life. I've met believers who, who just seem to have this joy no matter what is going on in their life, and I've never really tapped into that, or I've never really learned to continually live in that place. And I'm convinced it's because for most of us, particularly as Americans, we don't realize what it takes to get to that point of fully experiencing abundant life. You see, the path to abundant life, even when we read here in Philippians, is really found in a paradoxical way. It's that life is found on the other side of death. The Bible talks about abundant life. Another word for abundant life is the resurrected life. Now, let's just think about that, resurrected life. If there's a resurrection, that means there's a death first, right? 
And as believers, there's certainly a death that has to take place, but I, I'm convinced more and more there's things in our life that we'll go through. There's things that God will allow us in our lives that bring us to the death of ourselves, of, of our control or our seeming control of different things. And on the other side of that, there is a freedom that God wants to bring to every one of us, a freedom to know that he's good, that he is in control, that he's got a plan, that he is working, and that we can fully throw our entire lives behind him and his plan and know that he is truly working all things out. And so I want to say that to you today to encourage you. Like I mentioned, this message is a message I pray exhorts some of you, but also comforts some of you. Some of you in that place, God does have that life for you. And you're in that place right now where you're wondering, I'm not sure that he does. I want to say, yes, he does. Yes, he's good. Yes, he can be trusted. There is real freedom. So I want to share a little bit about this morning, uh, this message is going to kind of, I'm going to share a little bit about far-reaching, what we do and who we are. I want to come back into Philippians 2 and kind of tie this together, and I'm going to end with Afghanistan as well and make a personal exhortation to you. I, I share these experiences about this resurrected life because as a, as a person who is very blessed, as, as Danny mentioned, my title, Director of Victims of War, what it means is I get the privilege of working with a lot of widows and orphans all across the globe that we partner with that we help rescue and rehabilitate and restore. And I share this, this, this idea, this promise, this truth of a, an abundant life of freedom on the other side because I get to work firsthand with people who, who do not have the, quote, American dream like we do. And yet they have a life that I'm envious of. They have very often, they have very little, they have nothing, and yet they have joy. They have some of the most incredibly difficult, horrendous testimonies or stories that you could imagine. And you think, how could you even function as a human being? And yet there's joy and they're persevering and they're raising their kids and they're dreaming and hoping because they've found this life that Philippians 2 talks about. This life that comes on the other side that Jesus models for us, this, this life. Far-reaching ministries began almost 30 years ago, really accidentally. Our founder, Wes Bentley, has, was involved with a different missions organization, and he had heart for Russia, but because of his former military background, he was asked to come and basically do a reconnaissance to southern Sudan, who had been struggling with decades of civil war. There was Christians in the south being persecuted by primarily Islamic ideology from the north. They wanted their resources, all kinds of things, but they were invited to come in. And while he was supposed to be there on a simple three-week reconnaissance uh, mission to make sure it was safe to bring Bibles, to bring medical aid, to set up camps and clinics, while he was there, he ended up, by God's providence and uh, God opening doors, meeting with some very top officials and some very high-ranking military leaders. One of these military leaders was basically known as an absolute butcher. He was a man just who had, who led men, but... There's, there's men who kill because they have to defend and men who just cross the line in war. This was one of those guys who had long since crossed the line, but eventually something just was destroying him. Something was eating him up. And, and, and West was able to have a conversation. This guy couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. There was something he knew. It was just he couldn't find forgiveness. And West was able to share the, the gospel with him. He was able to share the truth about Jesus and what he came to do and, and how he died for our sins and, and forgive us and knows everything. And he's going to share. This man couldn't believe that he too could be forgiven. And Wes said, no, you too can be forgiven. And he led this general through the sinner's prayer and he led him to the Lord. And something powerful broke off on that man. There was a freedom that came into his life. And he said, I need, my men need what you have. And so he invited Wes to come back to start to teach his men 
he didn't he wasn't looking for this. He he felt called to Russia at that time. He did not want to be at the equatorial line in Sudan where a, a nice cool day is 110 degrees, you know. Uh, and yet this was the door that God opened. And and what Wes learned and what he, we know and any believer really knows that the, the life of blessing is always found on the other side of obedience. And so what was asked and what was presented and he prayed and said, no, Lord, this is what you're calling us to do. We're calling him to do. And what began as one man going is now turned into an organization where we're in 37 different countries. But we began with these chaplains, and, and I love these chaplains. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go back to Sudan and teach these chaplains and be with these men. They're some of my favorite men on earth. They're like David's mighty men. If you've ever read about David and his men that were around him, that's what these guys are like. And so he began to train these chaplains, and these chaplains are men who do serve in military units. They're not like our chaplains. Most of our chaplains in the military simply administer spiritual care, but the chaplains in the southern Sudanese army actually have weapons. They do fight because they need every man possible. And so these are men who, who love God, who love their families, who want peace. And so they're fighting the army, but they also want to bring the gospel. And so what we've been able to do over the last 30 years is train over 600 chaplains and so the military handles a lot of the military training, but we get them for a year and a year of Bible college. But more than just Bible college, it's great. They go through the, the, the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We send and partner with different pastors from the area in America. We send them out for two-week block classes, teaching them through Genesis and Matthew. But they also get three months, listen to this, of women's ministry training. Pretty crazy. You wouldn't think of a you know, hardened military guy getting training on how to deal with women and also three months of children's ministry. Because these men are not just fighting men, but they're also going to villages and all these different places. Most of them are pastors, you know, on the weekends and in the different times when they're wherever they're stationed. And they've learned that they have to minister to the women, minister to the children, because oftentimes they are the innocent victims of war. And they are dealing with all this trauma. And it takes not just a quick prayer to deal with trauma. It takes, you know, care and weeks and months and sometimes years to walk with people to see that healing take place in their life. And these men are some of my favorite men. Like I mentioned, like, I like David's mighty men. A few years back, I was there. And I remember getting the chance to preach and teach and just to hang out with these guys. And it was day three of the refresher course. And one of the guys, his name was Paul Quo. And I got to the chance just to get to know Paul. And I was talking to him. And at the end of three days, I said, hey, Paul, can I pray for you? And he had this big smile. And he was a dinka. He's like six foot six, this huge guy. And it's as big as hands, this big smile. And I go to put my hands on his back. And he was on fire. And I say on fire, it wasn't like he was spiritual. Oh, this guy was on fire. No, he was literally like, I mean, he had a fever. I can't even imagine how, how hot it was. I'd never felt a human being feel that hot before. And I asked, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. He didn't want to talk about it. And so I prayed for him. And then his, after he left, his buddy told me, yeah, he's dealing with malaria and typhoid. He just got back from the clinic this morning. I was like, what? He's got malaria and typhoid. And he had walked over a week to get to the refresher conference. And I watched him sing and worship and love the Lord, and take notes, and study his Bible, and I think, man, I am such a wuss, <laughs> you know, and, he, and, and I just thought, man, there's a joy that he has, there's a freedom that he has, this guy has found life, does he want malaria, no, does he want any things, absolutely not, nobody wants, and yet there was something about the joy that he found in Jesus, that allowed him to persevere, and to push through, and a lot of these men, you know, they know the cost, they know the cost, what it means to defend their families and defend their country and, and to fight. They know the cost, what it means to preach the gospel. They know the cost because over the last 28 years, 73 of those chaplains have given their life in service of the Lord and for their country. 
preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and going to the most difficult places. They're men that are willing to run into the places that others run out of, and that really has come to define our ministry in many ways. You know, running into the places that most people are running out of. I mentioned these 73 men, and if you ever get a chance, and if you ever want to, we'd love to host you up at our office in Marietta for a tour. But we have a wall of honor, we call it. And all of these 73 men, we have their picture and their stories mounted up on the wall. And so when I go into to, to the office and I go prepare for my day, oftentimes I'm walking around and I see these men. And many of the, these men are men that I've prayed with, I've talked with. I, I know their stories. And it, it encourages me, it humbles me, but it, it motivates me. You know, this is what it means. These, these guys that, that had real life, do they have a death wish? Absolutely not. But they have a love for the Lord and a love for people that, were, that they were willing to risk it all for the Lord's sake. From that ministry that began in southern Sudan, we moved out into ghost operations that we call. Again, Wes, the military guy, some of you military background, ghost operations. Essentially what that means, it's the invisible hand of the church into the most persecuted parts of the world. Places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Burma, and other places. 37 different countries that we are now operating in and bringing the gospel into some of those persecuted places and getting to meet some of the most incredible people. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Afghanistan and a bit on, on the back end of it. One of the blessings I said I get to do is represent the children of war. And because in all these places, as you know, the most innocent victims are women and children. And what is near and dear to the Father's heart, the book of James tells us, what is true religion is to take care of widows and orphans in their need. And I'm so blessed to be able to do this. As some of you know my story personally, my, my youngest son, who's now six foot three almost, uh, was adopted from uh, Uganda. And the story that w- motivated us was because of persecution. And there was something called the Lord's Resistance Army that at that time persecuting there in northern Uganda that fully stirred our hearts to move and said, no, we have to do something about it. And, and Isaac, if some of you know him, he is one of the biggest blessings. He's got the best smile, the best laugh. He's an anointed worship leader. Sorry, I'm getting off on as a dad now here, but I could brag on my kids for a while. But I get to represent and to help share about some of the widows and orphans that we take care of all over. But not just in Sudan, also in Uganda, places like Burma. Actually, just south of the border, we've got a lot of work down in Mexico and Ensenada. I just got back from Costa Rica, and and hopefully another time I'll get to share it. It's a new ministry that we're pioneering, rescuing these kids out of sex trafficking. I couldn't even believe some of the stories that I'm hearing and the things that we're doing. I think not too far down just in Ensenada where the cartel is very active. And to walk with these kids and these young moms, really, that have been rescued out, we're building homes and walking through them. You know, it's not enough just to say a prayer, but it's to preach the gospel, but it's also to walk with them. I think of one particular kid named Luis, and and, and, I, and it's important for me to use names because they're not just kids. You know, these are, and I, I keep these kids on their my phone, and I look at them, and I pray for them. This one little girl, Leona, from Costa Rica, man, she melts my heart. I always think, like, man, this was my daughter. Anyway, but Luis, I'll tell you his story. I got to meet Luis a few months back, and Luis has a couple younger sisters who, whose grandma had rescued them from their mom because his mom, her mom had gotten, their mom had gotten involved with drugs, and her husband was in the cartel and all kinds of things, and so they were trying to sell the young kids, and the grandma rescued the, the young, his younger sisters. Luis, for some reason, stayed with his mom and her mom's boyfriend at the time, but at midnight, he heard his mom talking with her boyfriend about selling Luis to the cartel. And they would sell the kids to the cartel either to go beg for money, 
They would sell them to the cartels. You can imagine that their bodies to be exploited. And Luis heard this. And so Luis, out of fear, runs across Ensenada all night to try to find his grandma's house. I don't know if you've ever been to Ensenada. It's not a small little village. It's a huge city. And somehow, miraculously, Luis found his grandma's house. And there at his grandma's house, who was a believer, who we were working with already, we were sponsoring and helping feed and take care of Luis, Luis's grandma and the two younger sisters. We met Luis and started working with him. And for a year, Luis didn't talk. You can imagine the trauma that he experienced at the hands of his, his this was his own mom and what he, and how he had gone through. And, I, and I'll fast forward this for sake of time. It was amazing to see what Luis, when I met him a few months back. You see, we walked with Luis. We he regularly met with a local pastor. We, we feeding him and his grandma, helping build him a house. But we're also, you know, funding music lessons and other things to kind of help walk him through some of the trauma that he was experiencing. And I share this story because I get choked up a lot of times when I think about him. Because I, when I saw Luis, we brought the kids down to a beach in Ensenada to actually just have a birthday. So it was like 15 kids, and they all had a birthday on the same day. Because most of them had never had a birthday party. And so we brought them on. They all had presents. We had a barbecue. And in Ensenada, they'd never been to the beach before. And you're like, what? They'd never just been kids before. And so we brought the group of kids. We hung out with them for a day, which is some of the blessings I get to do and hang out with some of these kids. So we, we brought them to the beach. We had a birthday party. We had a barbecue. If you've ever been down, usually there's somebody bringing horses by. And so we put the kids on horses. And, and Luis had the biggest smile. And, and I didn't know it was the same Luis. Luis couldn't stop talking the whole time. He hadn't really been talking much. You know, I knew for a year previously he hadn't really been talking. And he just began to open up. And I share these stories because I share the the encouraging stories that when the gospel, when when the love of Christ is demonstrated, when you walk with people, things can radically change in a person's life. Which brings me back to Philippians chapter 2 and to an exhortation for us this morning. Let me ask you a question. How many of you desire to live a life of significance? Some of you are afraid to raise your hand. I'm not, it's not a pastor trick question. I know, I know you pastors, you're trying to trick, no, legitimate. How many of you want your life to count? Okay, yes. I, if your hand's not raised, there's something wrong with you. I'm not trying to trick you, I promise. Pastors do this, I know. I'm not. No, we desire to live a life of significance. And we should. There's nothing wrong with that. The fact that you want to make your life count is because you were created in the image of God. God created you on purpose for a purpose. Now, you might have been an accident to your parents. Maybe your brother and sister are like 15 years older than you. Maybe that, But you are not an accident to God. God has a purpose for your life. And he wants your life to count. I remember many years ago doing a funeral, and, and I was sitting there, and I actually enjoy doing memorial services because you have an attentive audience. So you get to preach the gospel. And at that point, people are wrestling with the most serious questions of life. At that moment, we had, I was at the graveside, and, and I had done the final message, and the family was saying goodbyes, and I was just off to the side. I remember it was a very powerful moment in my life, and just reading the headstones. I don't know if you ever get a chance to. Uh, I know it sounds weird, but if you ever find yourself in a memorial site, read some of the headstones and just look at what some of those final sayings and the epitaphs are. And one in particular was a scripture, and it was just simply as this, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race, and I kept the faith. And I thought, man, I want that to be my life. And I can say that now in, in my 40s and realizing I've gone through a lot of life, and I realize there's a lot of people who don't finish well. There's, you know, when I was younger, I thought, yeah, of course, you finish well, right? But all of us know a lot of people who, who started off good, who kind of midway through are running, good, running well, but somewhere along the way, it's like they don't finish well. So when Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, that was a big deal. 
That, 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 that's what I want to be true about my life. And, I, and I'm certain that I, I'm, I'm speaking to a room of people that say, yeah, I want that to be true of my life. And I remember looking at that as well. I saw that, and I saw the person when they were born and, and when they died, and it had the two dates, and in between was a dash. And that dash really represents all of our life. That's what we have. We have that dash, that, that space of time that every single one of us, God has given us that dash. And the question is, what are we going to do with that dash? Because if I want to be able to say, you know, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, well, something in that dash has to be lived right in order for me to say that. We all desire to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So what does my life look like in the dash? Listen, it's not a prideful thing to want to have a life of significance. In fact, Philippians 2, I think, tells us in another way that how to live that life or how to, to achieve that, that place of significance and glory because we see, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Ultimately, it's the, the life of Christ that we see who's exalted. When the disciples, remember, they wanted to be great, but they got it all wrong. They're always fighting. I want to be on your left. I want to be on your right. Jesus never rebuked them for wanting to be on the left and right. He never rebuked them for wanting to be great, but he always corrected them and said, you don't know what you're asking. Or do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup that I, that, I, that I drink? It wasn't wrong for them to want to be great. They just had it completely backwards, like most of us do. They thought, oh, I'm going to be on top. No, Jesus says, it's not about how many uh, serve you, but how many do you serve? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Our, our, our world's definition of success is the CEO on top and the big pyramid, everybody else underneath. And the Lord's like, no, let's flip that upside down. How many people are you influencing by the lives that you are serving? It's not about your position. It's about people. It's not about your status. It's about are you serving? What we see here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, let this same mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. This same attitude. He says early on in verse 4, it says, it's okay, think of yourselves, but don't just think of yourselves. Make sure you think of others. Think not only of yourself, only of your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not, not wrong to think about yourself. Not wrong to take care of your, your, your home and your family and your needs and plan for retirement. That's fine. But if that's all you're ever doing, you're, you're missing out and you're living a shallow life and you're never going to experience that freedom, that life that God has. Let this mind, what's the mind? It's the mindset of Jesus who said, who knew it's not a thing for me to be equal with God. I am God. That's what he says. The equality with God, with God, he was. But it says he emptied himself. He made a choice. He made himself, as some of the translations say, of no reputation. He came in the likeness of man, not just man, but he ultimately was a man. He died. He died the death on a cross. That's the obedience that he had. But on the other side of that, God highly exalts him. On the other side of that death is life. It's resurrected life. Let this mind be in you. The same pattern. Now, this what we know from, from scholars and commentaries, th this particular passage of Scripture was written in the form of a hymn. So this was a, a song that the early church sang. And you know when you sing something, it gets in you? Like when we sang Be Thou My Vision, I love that song. I mean, I've known that song for 25 years or something. That song gets in you. There's, a, it, there's, there's something about singing, right, that just gets deep in your soul because that's how God's made it. He's, he's made us that way. This, songs can evangelize us. You know, they're, they're, we're declaring truth. And so the early church, this portion of Scripture was something they actually sang. It was part of their formation. It was one of the very first things that the early church memorized 
It was part of who they were. What were they singing about? Let the same mind be in you. And they sang about Christ. They sang about what he did. They sang about his humility and coming down to the earth. They sang about his willingness to obey the Father, to submit to death, even the death of a cross. And they sang about the exaltation that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the mindset that we're supposed to have. This is the attitude that leads to life, that life that we truly desire, that life that isn't contingent on, quote, the American dream. It isn't contingent on whether the stock market's up or down. It isn't contingent on any of those things. It's a life that says, no, I live for the Lord and I'm living for others. And because if I have that, then I'm wealthy. If I have that, then I have everything. Jesus, if I have you, I'm good. That's the life, that, that abundant life that the Bible talks about. And this is a great paradox. To be emptied, excuse me, to be filled, we have to be emptied first. Emptied of pride, emptied of our, you know, delusions of control, emptied of all these different things, and then we're filled with the Spirit, filled with love, filled with joy. If we want a name, we have to make ourselves of no reputation. A name that's spoken of in heaven. See, we all have a choice. We don't always get to decide what comes to us. We don't get to decide what happens to us in life, but we always have a choice how we respond. Any Lord of the Rings nerd fans out there like myself? A few of you? Okay. I remember years ago watching it and read the books, but there's a scene that just, I remember it gripped me. And uh, if you remember the story, Frodo is tasked with destroying the ring of power. He's got to take it to Mordor and throw it in the volcano and break the power of Sauron, the, the evil overlord there. And he's talking to Gandalf, and he says this. He says to Gandalf, the wise wizard, he says, I wish this did not have to happen in my lifetime. He says something I think all of us who have ever gone through anything going, I wish this didn't happen. I wish this wasn't my lot. I wish this happened to somebody else. I wish this happened 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 100 years, whatever that might be. And Frodo or Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. The Bible is constantly telling us the same thing over and over. We, we can't always decide what happens to us, but we can decide what to do and how to respond. Esther, for such a time as this. Esther, you don't want to be here. You don't want to make this decision. But if you don't do it, God will bring somebody else up. But you're going to miss your opportunity. And I am convinced more than ever that all of us in life will have an Esther moment. It may not be as big and grand, and it may not be written in the annals of history like Esther's was, but I think as believers, we'll all have an Esther moment where we're forced to decide, what are we going to do? Will we withdraw back in fear, in our own comfort, or will we step out in faith, whatever that might look like in your life, and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. This is the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that you're good. Let this mind be in you. Listen, it's a choice. The fact that it says it's a mind is a choice. He didn't say, let this feeling be in you, because our feelings can come and go. Like, no, let this mind, let this attitude, let this be the, the same choice that you make. Even Jesus there in the garden, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. His emotions wanted to be somewhere else. But he had that mind that said, no, I'm going to obey. I'm going to put others first. For the joy, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. That choice that he made was to please the Father. That choice that he made ultimately was also for you and for me. The joy that was set before him, he made that choice. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's a way of moving forward. 
We say, I want the life of Jesus. Great, then let's fully embrace the life of Jesus, whatever that might look like. And I'll tell, tell this to you. Whatever death may come, the greater the death, the greater the life. And I, and I also realize it's not just a one-time event in our lives. <laughs> God always has more for us. So there's, there's going to be things as you walk through this life that will bring you to the end of yourself. You thought, oh, I did that 10 years ago. Good for that. Good for you. I, I can pretty much guarantee there's probably something else that God's going to bring into your life because he has more life for you. There's something else. And that's not a scary thing. That's not a God's mean sort of thing. That's just life sort of thing. But God's going to show up in a very powerful way in your life. Christ calls us to the cross because we'll never become like him apart from that. The cross is something you have to choose. And sometimes the cross is something that is placed upon you by your enemies, by others, just like it was for Jesus, but you still choose it. You still choose to obey, to submit, to say, Father, you're good and I trust you. I trust that you're good and I trust that, like you said, there's a life on the other side of this. There's a life on whatever I'm going through at this moment. It's the valley of the shadow of death, but it's just a valley, and you want me to pass through this. There's something on the other side of that. I'll wrap up and share a little bit about Afghanistan and Ukraine. There's a lot of different things. We're currently involved in five wars, but I did want to give an update on Afghanistan as well and then make a personal final exhortation. When Afghanistan hit, like most of us know, it's been six months now, and it's interesting how much happens in the world, how quickly it falls out of you know, our, our, uh, our media's attention with Ukraine and now other things. But Afghanistan, when I say it was a worst-case scenario, it was an absolute worst-case scenario. We had 23 pastors and medical workers that we've been sponsoring, working plus their families for years there, and we started getting word that things were getting bad. But none of us were prepared for how quickly it completely collapsed. What was promised, two months, three months, okay, we got three weeks, it was like a matter of 10 days, as we all know, it fully collapsed. We all saw the images of the planes and the people and everything else. And we knew right away that, that we had to do something. I remember coming into the office and, and Wes being up literally all night, he didn't sleep. And I didn't, I didn't know that was possible to see somebody care for people that weren't like his actual family the way he cared for these people. He hadn't slept, and he said, we've got to do something. We didn't know what we were going to do, but we knew that there was a list that the Americans had. They called the SIVs, and people that had worked with the military and worked with the diplomats, and they were on a list, and America was sort of trying to get them out. And I say sort of because most of us know that sort of wasn't very well executed. But there was a whole list of people, a whole group of people that weren't on America's list or the UN's list or anybody's list, but they were on Heaven's list, and that were the believers whose lives were very much at risk. And we knew that we have to do whatever we could to get them out. And within a matter of a few short days, uh, uh, because of our ministry and because of connections, I always got to sit in a room full of pretty amazing patriots who love our country, and more than that, who love the Lord. Current and former special forces, SEALs, CIA, DIA, and others, who were some were active, some weren't at the time, came together and formed a plan to start working on getting out as many people as possible. They knew that if they didn't act, these people would lose their lives. And it was interesting. We reached out to our workers at first. They didn't want to leave. They're believers. Like, no, we're called. This is our country. We're committed. We're not going anywhere. And we admired them. We championed them that. We're like, yes, we understand that. But we had to talk with them and say, listen, it's not just about you. Because if you get arrested, fine. We know what. But what happens to your wife? What happens to your kids? And we started getting the videos of some of the kids being literally taken from their homes, videos on their cell phones from our workers and being forced to marry some of these Taliban soldiers and 
many other horrible stories that I won't share this morning. And so they realize, okay, we do need to get out so that we can get back in, because the goal isn't just to get all the Christians out of Afghanistan and leave it for the devil to absolutely destroy, but how can we be strategic in getting people out to get them back in? And so right away we went in and sent two different teams and into the mountains and finding rat lines and different ways of getting people in and out. And I can't go into all the details, but over the last several months, currently we have over 500 that we've been able to rescue, that they are safe. And when I say rescued and safe, that means they are actually in a place where they have the ability to thrive. Um, there was a lot of organizations doing a lot of different things, and I'm thankful for it. But a lot of those people are now kind of in, they've left the frying pan into the fire, you know, I'll just say that. And so we've continued to make sure that we're walking with the groups of people that we've committed to to ensure that not only they get out of the fire and the frying pan, but into a place where they can actually thrive and, and actually have a, a life. We're one of the last ministries that's still actively working in Afghanistan, and we have a kind of a unique way we've been working through believers, through some you know, interesting folks who can at times get things to people that we need to get them to, uh, contractor-type folks but keeping people in safe houses, keeping them fed, keeping them in the places until we can get them flown out and into the countries that um, will be their, their new homes. I'd say continue to pray. Um, we've had countries say yes, and then I won't go into all the details, political pressure from the U.S., they've said no. So we have countries that have said yes. We had two planes ready to take off, and then when Russia invaded Ukraine, that affected our plans. You think, how does that affect our plans? Because the Taliban in line with Russia... Um, made some alliances, and so that shifted us. And if I told you all the plans, you wouldn't believe me, but having to move some of our folks out of, you, you took them to that country? Um, but then getting them out. And so we still have a couple of those plane loads getting ready to leave, and so continue to pray. We still have another 1,000 people that we're committed to, um, with another 3,500 that have reached out to us, but we want to make sure that, no, we've committed to this next 1,000 that we are actively working with and working towards getting into a safe country, to a safe place. I think of the people there who we've got to minister to, some of the cool, miraculous stories. One guy, we, this is not his actual name, but we call him Benedict. He got saved in the early 90s, one of the first believers in Afghanistan. And he's really kind of a church father. And he kind of oversaw a lot of the underground church there. And when he, I loved his testimony. When he first got saved, he was scared out of his mind. But he, he, would, he tells a story about at night he would travel, and he was afraid to leave his footprints because he didn't want then the Taliban to find him. So he'd walk across the walls at night and to deliver food and have secret Bible studies in rooms. But eventually, he got not only was he saved, but then he, he really encountered the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was baptized in the Spirit, he says. And from then on, there was this boldness. There was this courage in his life. And from then on, he just walked around, and he tells these stories of how God protected him and led him. And all these years, he's still, still actively you know, ministering and serving. I think it's some incredible stories. Uh, call him Timothy. Uh, YWAM reached out to us at another ministry because they heard what we were doing and said, this was early on, and said, we have our key leader, our top leader, and he's received a credible threat from the Taliban. Can you do anything? And within a few short hours, we made some phone calls. We were able to extract Timothy out. And an hour after we got, or after we got him out, the Taliban showed up at his house or he would be dead. Timothy was there as a leader, and it was kind of incredible. You think, how, do you, how are you a leader of ministry in Afghanistan? Well, he actually ran a CrossFit studio in, in, in um, Kabul. Some of you CrossFit people are feeling the call to ministry. I don't know. Kabul's got some openings, apparently. I don't know. But, but you're, you think, how do you minister there? Well, they, were, they would do whatever it takes to, to get there. And so they'd have a studio, and they're teaching people, and then afterwards, Bible studies in the back room and stuff. 
And so Timothy's alive. He's in a current, uh, a neighboring place, continuing to minister and oversee the refugees there. I think of this one lady who was amazing. The story uh, we call her Amy Carmichael. She's Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India, but her name's different. But right before the fall, she she oversaw a, a ministry home, and she had 19 young women in, in the ministry home, ages I believe 14 to 20 or so. And there was something that the Holy Spirit just spoke to her and said, "You need to get out." Even though she was getting reassurances, "No, you're going to be fine. We're going to protect in the military, and you've got weeks." There was something that said, "No, you need to leave." And you need to burn all your files. And so that's exactly what she did. That night, she gathered all the, all, of the, all the young women. She burned the files. And they were able to escape to a neighboring country, Tajikistan. The next day, the Taliban went to that place. They had heard about this house full of young, young ladies. And they went, and they were gone. They had, she had listened to the voice of the Lord. I can continue to tell you stories of Afghanistan, Burma. We're now in Ukraine. And Ukraine has been such a, like, like most of us, we're shocked, we're in horror about all that's taking place. And what's been really tough for us as a ministry is we have workers on both the Ukrainian side of the border and in the Russian side of the border. In fact, we have long-standing ministry in Russia, 15 churches that we've helped build and pastors that we sponsor. We have hundreds of um, elderly uh, widows that we have a Potatoes for Grandma program. In fact, I'll mention that in a moment on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side that we help feed and take care of. And so the, I, I just want to say this, the believers there in Russia are not for this war. They can't say anything for fear of their own life. In fact, a couple of our key pastors, we've had to, we had to fly them out because they were getting arrested. And so a couple of our key leaders are in another country right now from Russia because Putin's cracking down on any kind of dissent, any kind of even past history, social media, anything that links them. And so they've had to get out. And I share that with you as you pray. There's a lot of innocent people on both sides, and we're taking care of people on both sides of the border. Because some of the some of the refugees they fled west in the Ukrainian crisis, three million people have left Ukraine, the greatest displacement of people since World War II. But a lot of those people also went east. You think that's crazy? But some of the Russian-speaking Ukrainians before the war heard they they went east, and so they're in Russia. But nobody's taking care of them. But we have workers on that side taking care of them. We're, we're bringing in medical aid. In fact, uh, it's pretty amazing how God works. We're working with a, a former Calvary Chapel pastor who was a missionary in Ukraine for many years, who married a Ukrainian, but who runs a logistics company now, basically a trucking and shipping company. And so because of that, he knows all of Ukraine. He knows all kinds of people all over. And with that, we've been running transportation all throughout Ukraine, delivering people, transporting them, those who are leaving to different countries. And we have, we're working with local churches and the deacons of the churches who, who aren't fighting, but they are driving in, in, in harm's way. And so we've outfitted them with body armors. They're driving in all these places. There's just an incredible work of people who are willing to stay and, 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 to, and to do all they can to share the love of Jesus, bringing in food, uh, bringing in insulin, bringing all kinds of things there, and really praying that there's a quick end, a peaceful end to this as soon as possible. When I think of these people, I think of Luis, I think of Paul, I think of some of the other stories like Leona and the chaplains. I always say, Lord, how does, what am I supposed to do? What would I want the, if that was me, what would I want the body of Christ in America? How would I want my brothers and sisters in America to respond? What would happen if I was born there, if this was my son or my daughter? It's funny, when I talk to the chaplains and stuff too, they're always praying for America. I'm like, they're praying for us. And I'm like, what? We're praying for you. But we're praying for you. They, they love America. Something my mom taught me years ago, and my mom's a great intercessor like my grandma before her. She said, the devil always shows you what's important, what the greatest threat is by what he attacks. 
when I look around the world and I see what the enemy is attacking, widows and orphans primarily, but all these places, I see what's important to God. Widows and orphans are important to God. They're so near to his heart, and that's why Satan so attacks. And I think we're supposed to feel for the body of Christ at large. And if we don't feel, something's wrong. And I think about this often. As I, I'm constantly dealing in, in, in these situations, I'm always saying, Lord, I don't ever want to get to the place where my heart is hard, where I'm cynical about anything. I want to feel what you want me to feel. I want, you to, I want to see what you want me to see. Because it's easy in this world to get jaded. It's easy to get hardened. But if we get to that point, I think something's wrong. You know, the Bible talks about leprosy. And leprosy, if you of you Bible students knows, is it, it, it really represents sin. If you know anything about the, the, the disease of leprosy, it's, a, it's an insidious disease, but it's interesting in that it works from the inside out. And so we typically think of it as a skin disease where parts are falling off and skin's being, you know, cancerously kind of corroded. But really, doctors have discovered that the root of it is actually not a painful thing, it's actually a painless thing. What happens is you lose the ability to feel, you lose the ability to process pain. Pain's actually a gift. It's actually something that at times can be a gift to kind of prevent and to protect. And so what happens with people with leprosy, they don't feel things. And so some of the, what they discovered was some of these people in like the slums of Calcutta and others, when they were losing digits, well, actually rats were not on their fingers at night and they didn't feel it. Paul Brand, who writes with uh, Philip Yancey in this book, you can read about it, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and he talks about this in, in another one of his books. But there was another person who was dealing with leprosy and, and went gone blind, and he was so, this person was so consumed with this disease, he was always washing their face and trying to keep all the disease off. Well, they didn't realize they were washing their face with scalding hot water and blinded themselves. I just share this with you to understand the nature of leprosy and how it works. You would think, oh, a disease where you don't feel pain, that sounds great. Actually, it's, it's a really horrible thing. And that's why it's interesting that the Bible compares and uses leprosy as a, as a way of showing metaphorically what sin does, how it works from the inside out, how you lose your ability to feel, to feel convicted, to feel guilt, to feel pain over a situation. It's actually a really, if you feel that, if you get to that place where you're beyond feeling, that's a really scary place to be. That's individual in your own sin. But I think there's a, an application as well to the body of Christ in that when we fail to feel what our brothers and sisters, the body of Christ is feeling somewhere else in the world. If I'm not feeling that, if there's, if there's a part where I'm just so detached and, Lord, there's something wrong. Lord, what is it in me that you need to change? What is it in me that I need to feel? There, there has to be, there should be something about that, that I'm connected to your heart. So what's the takeaway this morning? You know, I know I've covered a lot. I, you know, I talked about our background. I really keyed in on Philippians 2 and talked about the dash. I guess I would say to you this morning, where are you at? Do you really want to make a life of significance? Are you really experiencing that life, that abundant life? Have you come to the other side of that death where you're experiencing the life that Philippians 2 talks about, that exalted life? Because that's the life that God wants for us. Let this mind be in you. If you were to sum up your dash right now in your life, are you truly on a path that you can say, I fought the good fight, I finished my race, and I kept the faith. If not, today's a, t today's a perfect opportunity to say, Lord, I needed a course correction. Today's the perfect opportunity to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've been living this way, it's shallow, it's meaningless, whatever that might be. Listen, as long as you have a breath, as long as you have a pulse, there's a purpose, and it's never too late. You can change and redeem the time that God has for you. What does that mean personally for, for you and connecting to what we're doing? First of all, I would say pray. As anybody would always say, as believers, pray. Anybody want to hear a cool, cool miracle story? 
a cool prayer story? We always want to be encouraged. So I encourage you to pray because it matters. I was talking to Ed Gaunt, who was our um, director of our American office for many years, and he was over in Afghan, uh, excuse me, Sudan about, I think it was six, seven years ago, he was telling me. And they were coming back from the capital of Juba on the road to Nimali to our compound, a notorious road for, for thieves and, and, and thugs. One night they were coming, uh, him and the senior chaplain James on, in a truck, on, coming way too late. They knew they shouldn't have. And sure enough, they got stopped on the road by a band of about 20 armed men. These men happened to be Muslim men, um, Ed said, and they knew the situation was precarious, was an understatement. Got very serious, very quick. James was a very joking, jovial guy. Ed says, hey, what, what's going on? And Ed's trying to talk to James, and suddenly James looks at Ed and just says, shut up. And Ed very quickly sobered up, and he realized the gravity of the situation. And James gets out of the truck, and he starts talking to the men, and the men are yelling, and James is trying to calm them down, and they're yelling, and it's escalating, and Ed thinks, this is it. I'm about to go see Jesus. You know, he, was, he was ready in that moment that there's no way they're getting out of the situation. And Ed says, out of the corner of his eyes, he says, out of the bush, he says, the largest man he'd ever seen in his life, you know, this huge guy, you know, out of the bush comes and he starts talking and starts saying something to the men, this group of men in front. And whatever it was, Ed looks out at the men and he says, like, they had this, like, confused look on their face. And suddenly they kind of put their guns down to the sides and they just waved them on through. James gets back in the car and Ed's asking and James says, I don't know, we're just going and they drive on through. Well, the next day during daylight, Ed was determined. They went back. They're like, who was this guy? What did he say? They couldn't figure it out. And so they started asking everybody in the village, who was this man? Uh, he was this tall, and this is what he looked like. We want to thank him. And, and everybody around said the same thing. We don't know who you're talking about. We have never seen this man. He doesn't live around here. I'm convinced, Ed's convinced, Je James was convinced that there was an angel who showed up in that moment. No doubt about it. You know, We've lost 73 men. I think how many more would have been lost without prayer? How many more Luises would not be speaking or would not be rescued? Sometimes it can feel, what else can I do? You know, there's so much, there's so much. But I think of the story of the good Samaritan. You know, he didn't save the whole world, but he saved one. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us have the ability to save one, save two. And, and saving you might be, one, I would say, wherever you're at. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Maybe your heart's moved and you want to be involved with helping what we're doing, whether it's rescue, whether it's taking care of some of these kids in Sudan and in Uganda. We have our Christ Crucible School. We're housing a lot of these kids who are orphaned and some of the, some of the kids, uh, the sons and daughters of the chaplains. We have a sponsorship program that you can stand with us to see these kids that are going to change a generation and change a country and change a continent. We do have our, our Potatoes for Grandma sponsorship program where we're feeding women and men on both sides, both in Russia and in Ukraine, and we are still doing that. It, it took a little bit of work, but we're able to get money still into Russia because for a while there, it was completely cut off, but we were able to get our funds to our pastors and to our workers there in Russia. Maybe it's sponsoring one of our ghost pastors, ghost operation pastors who are working in Iraq, Syria, some still in Afghanistan, and you're saying, I want to stand with them and, and what they're doing across the globe. Any one of you can do that, and, and that's what we need. My blessing that I have, the blessing I have, is to get to stand in front of believers because I've personally got to see these people. I've, I've broke bread with them. I've prayed with them. And so I know the work that we're doing. I know the lives that we're changing. And so I love the opportunity that I get to present to people like you and saying, I might not go to Afghanistan, but I can eternally affect somebody's life in Sudan, in Uganda, in Mexico, in Costa Rica. 
through prayer, through your financial giving. And the one thing I do know this is I know the way God has made our hearts. You know, I know that the, the people that I give towards, the missionaries that I give towards, I actually pray for. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I know the stocks that I pay attention to are the stocks that I'm invested in, right? <laughs> it's like, that's just, how's Apple doing today? Stink, you know, because that's the way our hearts are wired. You know, where, wherever your treasure is, your heart is there also. And so I have a lot of friends that, are, that serve all over, and I pray for them, but the ones that I financially partner with, those are the ones I'm really invested in. I know those are the ones I'm really praying for and I'm really concerned with. And so you have the opportunity this morning, and I would just simply say, I'm not going to ask you to give, but I would say this unashamedly, ask the Lord what he'd want you to do. Go to God and say, God, do you want me to do something? How much do you want me to give? And I'm going to be in the back. I guess they have a table for me in the back, and I guess that's where you guys hang out with donuts and coffee, and so I'd love to answer any questions for you and be in the back, but... Let me just pray, and I think uh, Casey and the worship team is coming back up at this time. Father, I just thank you so much, God. I thank you to be in your house this morning. Father, I, I talked about a lot of different things. But Holy Spirit, I do pray and believe that you had a word of encouragement and an exhortation for each and every one of us. And I just pray, Lord, for those who are in the valley of the shadow of death right now, Lord, they would... Have the hope that you are with them, that there is life. There's a resurrected life. There's new life on the other side. I pray for those, Lord, who have just kind of been cruising for a long time, thinking that, yeah, they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but they really haven't been doing anything. I pray today would be a day of conviction, a day of encouragement to change and to say, Lord, there's some things I want to do differently. Lord, there's some things I need to do differently. And so, Father, I just pray you would continue to work and move in, in the lives of every person here. I pray your blessings on all of Branch Church, God. They would make a difference in this community in Poway and Rancho Bernardo and the surrounding areas, God. They make a, a difference, Lord, in their workplaces of where they are at, each and every one of them, God. In the midst of darkness, every single person here, Lord, they're, they're pastors to their community. They're bringing light into the darkness. And I pray each and every one of them, Lord, live, live a life of, a, of great significance, that their dash is full, it's rich, it's overflowing. That, Lord, they truly would hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we love you. We commit this day again to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.